I said, empty your mind, be formless, shapeless, like water. It's about how hard you hit. It's about how hard you can get hit and keep moving forward. How much you can take and keep moving forward. Join movement expert Aaron Alexander as he dives into the minds of the foremost innovative healthcare thinkers and movement masters on their approach to optimal health and wellness. Align Podcast. What's up, world? My name is Aaron Alexander, and this is the Align Podcast. Today, I was honored to get to chat with Daniel Kish. Daniel Kish. You may have heard his name before already. Um, he is blind. He has been blind since he was just a few months old, and he has been navigating the world with clicks. He clicks himself around. It is incredible to see this man operate. It's called echolocation, and he uses sonar, essentially, in order to locate his position in space and and see the world around him. Such an inspiring conversation. We got into how he perceives the world, what it's like to be in his reality. Um, we got into how he's teaching other people about echolocation and his, just, his perceptions on everything, his outlook on life is incredible. This is not to be missed, this conversation. I had such a great time getting to chat with him. Anytime anything innovates, anytime anything adapts, then you are upsetting convention. You're, you're challenging convention. I've always used visual language. I've grown up around visual language. I don't have faces in my head. I'm body shape and body type, yeah, yeah, maybe. Um, but it doesn't play a key role in, in how I think of people. Uh, be sure to subscribe, share, leave comments. Uh, very, very helpful. Can't explain how helpful it is. Um, check out the website, aligntherapy.com, A-L-I-G-N therapy.com. On there, I'll find the blog. You'll find hundreds of free videos on functional movement and self-care, uh, online courses and eBooks, et cetera, et cetera. The self-care kit. Got to check that thing out. Foam roller, couple different size mouthwash release balls, bands, decompression joints, Super, super helpful. Keep your body moving well. In this conversation, it was um, actually, there was some kind of not that fantastic news. I apologize for this. I had the microphone plugged in and uh, it wasn't synced up properly. Quite depressing to me. Um, so I was talking into my laptop, talking into the microphone, but the laptop was what was recording it. So the sound quality is... <laughs> so quite embarrassing for me, but um, nonetheless, the chat was really great. So enjoy. And uh, here we go with Daniel Kish. Pow. Align Podcast. So you see through what's called echolocation. Can you tell us just a little bit about your background and what kind of led you to the inspiration to actually be able to <clears throat> come up from this and create what you have? Yeah, uh, sure. Um, well, thanks for having me on. Um, the the eyes were removed uh, uh, as a result of retinoblastoma, which is a type of retinal cancer. And um, that happened at a very early age, as you say. So the first eye was removed at seven months and the second at 13 months. So, um, you know, it's, I was just reflecting upon this uh, this morning. And uh, if you think about the navigational process, pretty much every creature, no matter, or, or pretty much every entity on this planet has some capacity to navigate. And animals, uh, mobile creatures, 
have developed sensors generally by using light waves and light reflection to know where they are in space. It's a, it's a fairly crucial mechanism to know where you are in space, to know what is around you, to know uh, where you want to, to go, and to have an idea of how you want to get there. So to then have creatures that don't have such a capacity, that don't have uh, a connection with their environment in that way, um, on the surface seems quite preposterous because it's just so fundamental to life on this planet. So um, what's interesting about humans is their adaptive capacity. Um, humans, if we think about hum humans as creatures on the planet, are relatively weak <laughs> physically, relatively feeble. We do not have claws. We do not have tough hides. Um, we cannot run particularly fast. We're not great diggers. Uh, we're okay at climbing, but there are certainly animals much better at it. So from a strictly physical standpoint, um, one really wonders how it is that we managed to survive at all. And the answer is, is pretty obvious. We managed to survive due to our brain, due to the adaptability of our brain or adaptiveness of our brain. So when you take an infant and you remove his access to light, which again is fairly fundamental to uh, organisms on this planet, uh, but do not restrict that infant in other ways, then you can create the conditions by which an infant or child, or indeed anyone of any age, can adapt to that condition, i.e. the condition of blindness. So in my case, that's really what happened. Um, my parents did not raise me with fear. They did not raise me uh, uh, by despair or doubt. Um, they were actually very pragmatic. They just decided that um, that life would would tell us what lay in store for me. Uh, that they would not dare to presume what must or should lay in store. So they kind of started from square one in the sense that they started from quote-unquote normalcy, and they, they just assumed that um, I should enjoy the same freedoms and responsibilities that other kids enjoy um, with a view toward growing up to be able to enjoy the same freedoms and responsibilities that adults enjoy um, with a kind of equal citizenry um, expected, I think. So, yeah, so... so I was not raised with restriction. I was raised with the kind of no limits philosophy, if you will, that um, is fundamental to our organization. And I think that more than anything is what really catalyzed um, my development of these kinds of skills. And so when we work with students, we, a big part of our training, uh, perhaps the biggest part of our training, is helping students to establish the conditions in which and by which uh, these capacities of freedom of movement um, can develop and come into play. Yeah, awesome. And so, you know, one of the big reasons that I wanted to chat with you today was 
I think that we all impose our own limitations upon ourselves, you know, or, or we allow our culture to impose the limitations or whatever, you know, whatever it is, whatever's, whatever's the, the, the boundary that you put yourself in, we will only grow to the degree that that boundary is, you know? And so I think that so many people, we don't realize that we have all of these self-imposed boundaries, you know, and for you, I think that it's just like such a powerful, it's like you, you are you're like a statement. You're like a metaphor. You're a human. You know, there's so many different ways to, to look at your approach to life. And I think there's so many lessons for people to get from that. You know, and one of the stories that you had told was uh, about your experience in, in Mumbai. I think it was like a TED talk. You were talking about that. You know, I think it's such an interesting thing where it's like, you know, people around you very likely almost want to put you into a box, I assume. Is that something that you experienced? There is no almost. Um, <laughs> so, so blindness historically and up to the present day um, is characterized by all kinds of, of presumed limitations and shoulds and shouldn'ts. And, and uh, in almost every culture, there is a box of some kind that is ready-made for blind people to go into. But to be fair... Um, conventional wisdom in one form or other applies to just about everyone. And conventional wisdom would maintain the status quo. So the conventions of society, first and foremost, impose sameness on our, uh, on us all. So everything is the same. Everything stays it is, as it is. Nothing changes, nothing innovates because anytime anything innovates, anytime anything adapts, then you are upsetting convention. You're, you're challenging convention with something new and something different. There, there is no place for blindness in convention. So blind people are marginalized. Um, almost routinely, almost everywhere you go. I've been to, to over 40 countries, I and or um, our instructors have been to almost 40 countries and plus or minus varying degree is the story is pretty much the same. So um, the, the positive of that is that it isn't subtle. Um, it's very much in your face. Usually, I mean, there are subtleties to it, of course, but the um, the restrictions, the the uh, restraints to liberty that are imposed on blind people in almost every culture are uh, quite overt and are therefore, in my opinion, relatively easy to spot, easy to see, easy to recognize. Um, so. There shouldn't be much of a surprise. There shouldn't be much of a, oh, I didn't realize that was happening because it's really pretty obvious. And it was to me. Now, part of the reason it may have been obvious to me was because uh, I was raised in such a, I guess one could say, anti-conventional environment, um, which did not hearken to any of those mores. And so when I got older and as I came abreast 
these kinds of cultural conventions, um, I was able to see them for what they were quite clearly. Whereas many blind people, uh, unfortunately are growing up or are, uh, already grown, but adapting in situations where, uh, a, the imposition of these restrictive conventions, um, are at play from the, from the onset. So that's all, you know, yeah. as a blind person. And then if that's all, you know, then that's all you inculcate. So, so really my situation, uh, resulted from a confluence of, of a variety of positive factors that we find pretty unusual. So whether or not it could be argued that I am somehow naturally talented or whatever, I mean, we all have natural talents in one way or another, I like to think. So maybe I am natural t naturally talented in some ways, but there is no question that, um, that the way I was raised and the uh, circumstances and situations that I was privy to were very positive to my inculcation of freedom of movement, freedom to navigate, freedom to choose, um, freedom to live the kind of life I wish, uh, without, not only without restriction, but without, um, uh, coming in under some other presumed authority. Right. Yeah, I think um, Buckminster Fuller, he has a quote, something along the lines of, if the system doesn't work for you, just create a brand new system, you know, and that oftentimes, you know, that makes people uncomfortable, you know, and it's like, if you are in some position, you know, and people really like to keep you in that position, and when you do have some degree of success, whatever it may be, oftentimes that will make people uncomfortable. You know, it's like, people's like, we have the norm, we have the standard, you know, nothing should change. And if something does change, that will then polarize my inability to evolve, you know, or whatever, whatever their, their, their hang up with it is to cause you to, to kind of be held back. And, uh, you know, one of the things, one of the quotes that I've heard you say, which I thought was just so cool, was, is that the most debilitating form of blindness is blindness to your own blindness. You know, I just—I was like cheering. Which is <laughs> you know, so. Well, it's, it's and it's a lot of these things I have learned, and um, our instructors and associates—we associate with a lot of people who support what we're doing. We learn this from observation, and uh, we've had the opportunity to observe a great deal of people doing lots of stuff. Okay, so. So people in different countries, people adapting to lots of situations, um, families of various different backgrounds, uh, instructors from various different tr traditions, scientists, professionals and experts of all sorts. So, so it becomes clear to us that blindness is no longer really, it's no longer appropriate to consider blindness uh, strictly speaking, as a, as a physical uh, disability or deficiency uh, or as one that's, that's just something that affects the eyes. Blindness is really um, potentially much more pervasive than that. And uh, <clears throat> in terms of how it affects the eyes, that's probably, that's probably not the biggest problem or not the, the, the most uh, uh, concerning type of blindness. So 
So people are, if you, if, so we tend to define blindness as simply a lack of awareness and that can cut across many, many different types of awareness. It can be psychological, spiritual, uh, social, um, and whatever, uh, whatever area or aspect of awareness is impinged, um, the biggest problem is if you don't recognize it, if you have no idea uh, how unaware you are within that domain. Yeah. Awesome. And I'm curious, you know, so it's interesting, from like a neurolinguistic programming perspective, I don't know if you're familiar with any work like that, uh, with describing things, certain people... Uh, they more they respond better to visual stimulus. They respond better to auditory. They respond better to tactile. You know, so oftentimes when you're speaking to somebody, if you can kind of pick up on what their preference is, you know, some people will say like, "Oh, I see what you're saying," or "Oh, I really feel you, man." You know, and then it kind of like it indicates the way that they the the best way that they they process information. Something that I've noticed with chatting with you is you tend to say. I see a lot. Is that something that I mean? And then, and then, from from like a, a neurological perspective, your visual cortex, I assume, is fully functioning at this point. Well, as, yeah, as far as we know, differently than mine, obviously. Yeah, as far as we know, as far as I mean, as far as as far as we understand the resolution of of uh, these MRI machines to be, um, my visual cortex seems to be functioning. Um, and I definitely do do image. I think. I mean. I think that 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 there are personality variables that differ among blind individuals, regardless of their imaging capacity or regardless of how they get around. Um, it, it, I've always used visual language. I've grown up around visual language. <laughs> I understand visual language, um, so uh, and and I do. Uh, I I do process in a very kind of image-rich way. So, for example, if I'm in a in a in a place and I'm either learning a new place or I know the place, but I'm traveling through it, I tend to kind of regard the the area from a bird's eye view and, and, you know, kind of see myself as sort of a dot, you know, in this place, while at the same time superimposing that, uh, superimposing upon that my own sensory experience, which is multimodal. I mean, there's no question that uh, as a, strictly speaking, non-sighted person, i.e. the eyes don't work, work, work um, I'm using... I'm using other channels. I'm using hearing. I'm using touch. I'm using my cane. I'm using my feet. I'm using my judgment. I'm using a very rich process of cognitive mapping. Um, I'm using problem-solving skills. I mean, all of these things come into play. So, but they all sort of converge into what I call a composite, a dynamic composite image. So it, it all kind of comes into play to create this image. And it's very easy for me to, to speak in terms of I see or, um, or, you know, 
that that kind of terminology. Right. My perception, I've been like, I've been trying to kind of experiment and analyze beer. Like, what is he seeing? You know, so in my perception of what you're experiencing is geometric shapes. You know, so I, I assume that when you are sending out your echolocations, the clicks, I assume you're just getting bombarded with all of this information that kind of gives you, in a sense, you probably see a lot more than standard sighted people, I assume, because you're taking in what's happening from behind you, what's happening from all angles, what's happening above you. You're taking in what's happening. You're like in an apartment building. You're probably hearing what's happening like three rooms over, I assume. Can you like give us like some degree of like what what is your experience like the best you could describe what's happening there well the the three-dimensional fuzzy geometry is true so in terms of quantity of information it's hard to compare really because because vision in the traditional sense vision of the eye uh, gives one access to light waves and light waves are very, very tiny, and they move very, very fast. And so you, the result of that is that you get this really quite detailed um, sensory data that come in to then construct a pretty detailed image. Now, it's strictly a visual image, and, and so visual images are, are very detailed for what they are, um, but there's a lot of information that visual images don't contain or may not contain. You cannot see through walls. You cannot see around corners. You cannot see through ceilings and floors. You cannot see in the back, through the back of your head. Um, and you cannot see information that occurs outside of the realm of light, such as sound or touch. So, I mean, very often, you know, I'm aware of, for example, gradients in the pavement. Um, uh, that others are not aware of, or um, I'm aware of tex- textural changes that others are not aware of, or as you mentioned in your examples, sounds, conversations. Um, really, when I was growing up, I, I have to say that although I was very much aware that that other kids could do certain things more easily without question, um, I really regarded people around me growing up as, as being somewhat obtuse because I really felt like I was quite aware of lots of things that other people were not aware of. So, um, you know, but I, 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 I had an attitude that was, um, probably a bit egocentric in that way. Uh, and so, you know, I just didn't really clue in that much on what it was that other people were seeing, what other people were able to see. But I certainly clued in on what they weren't able to see. Um, and so I, I, I didn't have this sort of, you know, kind of poor me attitude or, wow, you know, these sighted children really haven't made. It wasn't like that at all for me. It was actually a bit upside down in that sense. Right. Yeah. You know, and I think it's, it's really important that you have that perspective because, you know, everyone is blind to certain things. I don't mean that just in a metaphoric way. I mean, we only perceive a certain 
frequency of sound. We only receive a certain frequency of light. You know, and so we think, so many people think like, everything, all this information that we get, like, that's it. Nothing else exists. You know, and it's like, that's just, that's just our, our, our perspective on it. But that perspective is way off in my opinion, you know, and from yours, it's like everything you receive is just as good. It's just different. You know, some people, you know, talk to spirits, they're like shamans, you know, they're like going between worlds. If you believe, if you believe that, you know, so I think yeah, it's really yeah. important to have that like normalcy. Yeah. There are differences. There are differences. And, um, it, it, I guess it really has to do with how we use what we have. Right. And so I have worked to, to optimize, um, what I have. Um, and what I have is, uh, is rich enough and detailed enough to, to allow me a, a sufficient perspective on life to, to be viable and successful and, to manage in this, this world. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm really curious, do you have any perception of color? You know, does like that mean anything to you? Well, it means something, but no, I have no perception of color. So, I mean, it's strictly speaking, color is like, color is an abstract concept. Right. To me. Light is an abstract concept to me. Hmm. So, you know, something that pretty much every creature on the planet takes as fundamental is an abstract concept to me. Um, but you know what? We, we all deal in abstract concepts and we all manage to function in and with abstract concepts. So the fact that light is an abstract concept to me, I don't, I mean, I, I, I feel facile in my ability to converse about it, to understand it. Much of, much of my work, so I'm a, I'm a perceptual development specialist. It doesn't matter what the perception is. And, uh, well, actually, strictly speaking, it's a perceptual navigation specialist. So it doesn't matter what the perception is, and it doesn't matter what you're navigating. What we teach people to do is to perceive better through whatever channels they perceive and to navigate better through whatever conditions or environments or situations um they're working to navigate mm. so that obviously has brought us into um a wide variety of genres business development and education um you mentioned earlier that there's so many uh so many possibilities so many realms that this pertains to and in fact that's exactly what we found but uh much of our work actually does involve people who have remaining vision, people who have vision left. They haven't lost all their vision. In fact, I just finished working with a woman uh, where they, they want to be able to function better uh, with the vision they have. So we're able to do that. We're able to do that because we're able to understand it. We're able to relate to it and we're able to to uh, key into it uh, through observing and watching and communicating. Awesome. And one of the things that I've noticed with watching you echolocate is it seems like you're very specific with where you are making sound. You know, and the click, I tried to do the clicks that you do, and I, I can't even get close. Whatever you do, it looks like it's like there's some kind of like voodoo magic happening. Um, I'm sure it's a, a learned skill. 
but so when you're doing that, I've, I've, I've watched you, you know, like clicking up and clicking down and clicking left and clicking right. And, and it looks like you're really sending very specific signals places. Is that, can you kind of explain a little bit like what exactly is echolocation, how you use it? Yeah. So you are sending out clicks. You can think of it as kind of a spotlight, if you will. And so with the spotlight, you're, you're shining it around. And we, you do the same with your eyes. You know, the, the, the maximum acuity in the human eye is only about one degree. And then it starts to, to um, drop off quite steeply uh, beyond that. So people move their eyes much more than they think. Uh, we're not conscious of all of the eye movements that we make and all of the retinal movements that we make. So vision is really a kind of stitching together of the environment, taken in piece by piece by piece very, very quickly. Um, you have peripheral vision, which is a little bit of a different story. So peripheral vision low acuity as opposed to central vision, which is very high acuity. Peripheral vision is very low acuity, but it's more global, yeah, right? You get more of it. You get more of it kind of around you. You have a 180-degree view, and you catch something out of the corner of your eye. That prompts you to then reorient and fix fixate on whatever that thing is. So with echolocation, you, you have similar mechanisms. You've got uh, a kind of spotlight acuity, which is anterior, it's in front, and the clicking kind of shines this light, this irradiation into the environment that's, you know, kind of cone-shaped, but still fairly narrow at its, uh, uh, at its, at its end point. And that's where your maximum acuity is. You still have peripheral acuity with echolocation that goes all the way around behind you, okay? So, however, the resolution of echolocation is relatively low compared to vision. Um, I mean, well, the kids are difficult to make, but let's just leave it there. It's, it's, it's relatively low. So, I mean, so you really have to sort of pepper your environment with a lot of, of these... Um, irradiating pulses to get information about your surrounding surfaces. And that's exactly what bats do. Uh, bats who are very good at it do just that. They are, they are constantly peppering the environment with these, these pulses. And you are essentially aiming your pulses where you want to look, just as you would with your eyes. So I'm curious for you, you know, going beyond just echolocation and being able to you know, perceive sound and create an image inside of, of where you're at, what do you get as far as like senses of people? You know, it's like one of the, one of the things I think is really important is it was like, I've traveled all over the place, you know, and I've been in many, many rooms where I like, I immediately know I should not be in this room anymore. You know, I'm either about to get jumped or I'd like to just... This is not good, you know, and I chalk it up, you know, at least partly to my visual sense of, of observing everything. But I, I know that there's a deeper sense there. You know, I think that oftentimes you can get totally overwhelmed by our visual sensation. I think, you know, that occupies like 90% of our, our senses is our visual. Exactly. That could be off. It's a, it's a high percentage. 
through well, you? Do you yeah, feel really yeah, that yeah, yeah. I mean, the, 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 the figure thrown around is 80, 90 percent. So, so you hear things like uh, 80, 80 to 90 percent of our communication occurs non-visually. It occurs non-verbally. Right. 80 to 90 percent of our learning occurs non-visually, or occurs visually, rather. Um, uh, so, yeah, <laughs> you hear these these figures thrown around, and then you think, well, then basically a blind person is just completely hosed, just right. out of the picture, right? Because, and, and in fact, that is the assumption that's implicitly made. Sure. Um, but the caveat there is that one might argue that uh, some great magnitude uh, or percentage of learning occurs visually for sighted people. And some great magnitude of communication occurs uh, visually for sighted people because sighted people have vision and that's how they use their vision. But um, to stop there is is extremely egocentric. I'd call it sightist. <laughs> um, and, and the reality is that you completely shortchange the whole human organism uh, by utterly failing to take into account the adaptation process available to the brain, which we've routinely done throughout history. And so you learn to maximize and to, to, to make available to you a whole, oh gosh, a whole uh, array, a whole realm, a whole bunch of data and information that isn't visual, but is there for anyone. Okay. Um, it's just that, that, that sight tends to exclude or preclude information that isn't visual and marginalize that information. So, you know, how it all exactly works is really hard to say. Quite frankly, it's not been well studied. Um, how does intuition work? Who knows? Um, what, what elements that may be visual contribute to intuition and what elements that may be visual might impede the use of intuition, as you've alluded to, who knows? Um, we all have those experiences, those senses of, I shouldn't be here, or, you know, this person, steer clear of this person, or, or whatever. And, you know, it could be... <laughs> It could be the way the person walks. It could be the way the person breathes. It could be the way the person moves their head, which a blind person can hear. It can be the way a person's clothes rustle on their body. Right. It, it could be some cadence in their speech that, is, that catches your attention. Yeah. Uh, it, could, it could be an odor, you know, which maybe none of us are, are conscious of. Um, so I think, gosh, I just think we have to step back and rethink all of this visual, non-visual stuff, um, because I think that it just shortchanges our whole understanding of everything um, to kind of put all the eggs in the sight basket. Right. Yeah, I just finished a really great conversation with a fellow named Nick Morgan, who wrote a book, he wrote several books, one of which is called Power Cues. And it's all about that, you know, how we carry ourselves and, you know, how, how we speak, the tone of our voice, 
you know, all these different factors that people don't necessarily think they're paying attention to, but subconsciously they are. You know, we're predominantly at 95, whatever, a huge percentage well, of our brain is subconscious. It, it is subconscious, and it's also social. There's a huge social aspect to our brain, uh, as well as uh, tactile. Right. So we're enormously touch-oriented beings, even even though we're not so much aware of being so. Um, and uh, and that has to be accounted for. Yeah. Um, how it is that uh, that a blind person relates to another person? Everyone. There is a continuum of, of observance, a continuum continuum of awareness, a continuum of obtuseness. So, I mean, blind people can be keenly aware and sighted people can be keenly obtuse. So it doesn't have to do with vision. Now, I, I don't mean to discount, however, that, <clears throat> that there certainly are cues that are primarily visual that a blind person would not necessarily be aware of. I mean, I'm pretty much quite unaware, for example, of how people dress um, and how someone wears their hair, you know, uh, what their complexion may be, how they've been, you know, made up. Um, I have I have some ideas about how people walk and how and what their posture is and things like that. But I mean, you know, there are a lot of gestures. Um, I can I can catch I can catch movement, but I can't. I do not have the resolution to catch specific gestures, right? So, you know, I could be having a conversation with someone. He'd be giving me the finger the whole time, and <laughs> you busted. I, I would, you know, I wouldn't necessarily know. Now, if that finger, uh, if they were giving me the finger, then I, I would believe that that would likely show up in other ways, in their attitude somehow, right? So, you know, I might not know they're giving me the finger, but I may very well know what their attitude about me is. So, point is, um, there's more that we don't know about human interaction than what we do know. Yeah. So that brings a really interesting point up. You mentioned that you have no idea how people are dressing. You have no idea, you know, what people's faces look like. I, I assume. I mean, I am curious if you do have like, if you create an, an image of sorts of different people that you know very well. You know, or does everyone kind of have a similar image to you? I assume that's probably not the case. Um, but along with that, with women, you know, so. If you or I, mean, I assume you're attracted to women, you're attracted to men or whatever, I don't know. But but with with being like sexual attraction, you know, a huge portion of that is smell pheromones. You know, if I'm not attracted to the smell of a woman, it's like it's over. <laughs> you know, we're not going far with this. And I can tell that very quick. You know, like I, I assume for you, that's probably that times like maybe a million. You know, what what is that? Well, it might be. I mean, my sense of smell is actually pretty rubbish. Um, uh, I, I, I've worked with many students whose sense of smell is much better than mine. Um, I don't take the trouble to really image people very much. It was never very important to me to image people. Uh, but that's that may just be a Danielism, you know. I mean, it, other blind people... I mean, I, I, I remember I was uh, 
I was with uh, one of my um, former students. He was helping me with a workshop. He was from Switzerland, and he was translating for me. Um, and he he could see until about the age of ten, and then he lost his vision. And and so we were um, walking along, and he's kind of funny. And he he made this comment. He said. So today, he said, I'm going to dress you in orange. So in his mind, I was dressed in orange. <laughs> now, what I was actually wearing, I couldn't even tell you in terms of color, right? So um, I haven't bothered much to image people. I don't, I don't have faces in my head. I don't have... Um, body shape and body type, yeah, yeah, maybe. Um, but it doesn't play a key role in, in how I think of people. My reference to people is voice and personality and encounters, what kinds of encounters I've had with an individual. What is the character of an individual? To me, a person's identity is summed up by who they are in terms of how they are, how they behave, uh, and how their behavior represents their makeup as a person. And what about characteristics of a person that you would be attracted to? Same thing. Um, it's the same thing. Okay. So, you know, I mean, uh, I suppose there's some superficial element to me that I might find it hard to, to be attracted to someone that had a really, you know, gruff or grating voice or something. or I don't know. Um, but uh, more than anything, it really, and I don't mean to sound idealistic about this, but it really has to do with who a person is. I mean, to me, that that is what sums up a person. Awesome. So, so that's just... But you know what? I mean, that's me, and and I, I don't even pretend to speak for other blind people in this particular regard. Right. So one of the things when I walk around the world, I notice a lot with the way that people move. I mean, it's like constantly I'm getting all sorts of stories of you know what their life is like or whatever, and most of them are probably totally off. But nonetheless, like a creative nonetheless. Uh, I'm curious for you, not having that that visual end. Like, what do you see is missing in the world? Like, what, 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 what would make this, this world a better place in regards to people? Um, it'd be nice if we didn't prejudge each other. Yeah. Um, I think that, that we'd all live a whole lot happier if we didn't prejudge, if we didn't if we didn't, it's real interesting to, to work with people, what you learn about people, and this may sound very cynical, um, but I find that people, people relate to themselves more than they relate to other. So it is our tendency as humans to project something of ourselves onto others, and then that's what we relate to. Um, so you really kind of miss who this other person really is because you just layered something of yourself over them and, and that's what you're relating to um, and it, it, it just hugely colors and influences how it is you see this person and how it is that you relate to this person um, 
And so really you're, you're kind of relating to what I call an ism. And it's your ism. It's, it's not even their ism. So um, it'd be neat if we could somehow not do that and, and really start to see other people uh, more for who they are. And again, I don't mean to sound trite, but um, I know that we are not doing this. We are not seeing other people for who they are. Uh, we're seeing other people for who we are. And um, it's really very muddled and mixed up. And um, I don't know how we've survived as long as we have doing it. Do you feel like in a sense um, blind people have almost an advantage with that? Yes and no. Um, vision is funny. Vision, as penetrating and powerful as vision is and, and high resolution, all that wonderful stuff, you know, if I recited, I could look out this window. Well, I couldn't because the blinds are drawn. But if they weren't drawn, you know, I could look out this window and I could look across the street. I might even be able to look into the other person's house and right through their window and right into their living room and, and, and actually tell you what's going on over there. Um, crazy, you know, crazy business. Um, I, but for all of that, vision tends to be quite surface-oriented. So you, you see surfaces very, very well visually, uh, but you tend not to see through, behind, beneath, beyond, beyond surfaces very well, if at all. Yeah. And so uh, because vision is like that, and because vision is so highly prized in this society, in modern society particularly, we've become like that as a society. Um, and uh, I don't know that it's exactly a, a function of vision. I, I just think it has to do with how we use it and how, and how we tend to uh, um, attach ourselves to it and process it. So it's, it's still our choice. And um, obviously blind people don't have that, I'll call it a distraction, um, to contend with. But we've got other things. I mean, I'm sure. I'm sure there are plenty of blind people out there who are uh, just as prejudging as anyone else, and and uh, project themselves all over other people. I mean, blind people are as pathological and and messed up as anyone. It's just a different a different pathology and a different mess up. Okay. Um, I'm curious. You know, so I have a lot of days where I'm going really, really well, and usually I'm feeling pretty good. But there are definitely moments where I'll kind of have this kind of just like, ah, screw it. You know, like I'm not, I just don't feel like doing it today. You know, do you have moments like that? And how do you come out of that? Because I assume just like everybody else, you do. Yeah, sure. And, and for a blind person, um, there's a lot of headache involved in, in dealing with, uh, with public, with the public, the society, uh, because you, you, you step outside and you've just got the mark of Cain all over you. Um, and, and, and it draws almost invariably, it draws, I'll call it a very unnatural reaction from yeah. people, whether positive or negative. Um, you know, I mean, all over the map, it tends to draw quite unnatural reactions from people. So, you know, yeah, how, how it is that you can develop a, comfortable, normal, natural self-concept when uh, 90% or more of your encounters 
socially around you will just be heavily covered by this unnatural influence. I don't know. Um, but it, it, so you, you, so you develop a, a, a kind of a, of a balance and an attitude and a, a way of carrying yourself through your life that puts all of that in its place. Um, and maintains, allows you to maintain your own personhood. Um, and that can take work. It can take effort. And so, yeah, there are times when you you just don't want to do it, but then, you know, I don't have to deal with traffic. Um, yeah. So, you know, wherever I go, someone's usually driving and I'm, I'm doing my thing. I'm in my, I'm, I'm in my, I'm usually writing a paper or, you know, working on a uh, presentation or uh, developing a project or something. Um, I, I'm not worried, too worried about what's going on in the road. So, uh, you know, it's a give and take kind of a thing. Right. I'm curious, do you have any like, morning traditions? I asked a lot of people about, you know, what's like, how do you get up in the day? What inspires you to, to, to do what you're going to do that day? What, what really gets you going? I usually wake up energized. Um, I, I'm fortunate that way. I'm, I'm kind of a morning person. Uh, I tend not to sleep very well. So when I wake up, I'm, I'm up. I'm ready to start the day. I don't tend to, to drowse or doze or, or whatever, usually. Um, and uh, what drives me? Um, well, exploration maybe. You know, what's, what's going on? What's new? What's interesting? What's different? Um, I know that it's very important to me for people to, or for not just people, but really any creature to grow, to grow into moreness, to grow into, uh, self liberation, um, self awareness to just grow. Uh, that seems to be very important to me. So it, 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 I think really drives me whenever I'm, uh, reviewing correspondences or working on an article or a speech or, or a project, whatever it is, uh, in my mind, that's, that's kind of where I cast my attention is, is how, what, what will be the benefits? How will this impact others? Awesome. Yeah. If I, I feel like progress is, for me, it's it's the it's the biggest driving force, if anything. You know, it's like every time you have that moment where it's like, well, I can, whatever. If you're trying to jump higher, I can jump one inch higher. If you're trying to, you know, inspire more people, it's like I got ten emails of people that have changed their lives. You know, like all those feelings. Like, yeah. If more and people it, would be addicted and it, to that. It, it is just that. I mean, you know, it's one thing. It would be one thing if I were the only person or one of a very very select handful of people who could you know, jump on a bicycle and ride around the neighborhood or something, um, uh, without seeing. Um, but that, that would never have been an interest to me. I mean, if, if that were the case, there's no question in my mind that I would not be doing what I'm doing. I would not be out there in the public because I don't really see how that benefits anyone. 
um, necessarily. I mean, maybe there's a way, but I don't really see it. So, so my thing is imparting knowledge to people, imparting know-how to people, activating, helping people to activate uh, themselves to a greater level of improvement or capacity or whatever. So, so that's what's important to me. Awesome. So speaking of progress, I noticed you carry yourself really well. You know, so you know, like your posture and your movement is pretty good. Do you have some type of movement practice or like exercise thing that you do, or like how do you how do you stay in shape? Oh boy, um, there is a bit of a story behind that, I guess. I mean, so as a kid, I moved. You know, I, I was not one of these blind kids who was restricted. Uh, you very commonly see blind kids just sitting or put somewhere until someone comes to get them or whatever. So, so I wasn't, wasn't like that. I was constantly moving, constantly exploring. Um, uh, I was very in touch with my environment, um, physically, auditorily, um, I was a climber. I climbed everything, anything and everything. Um, uh, I was barefoot most of the time as a kid, so texture was very important to me. Um, and then as I got older, however, I came to realize that my movement style was quite different from others. Even though I was effective, I was an effective wrestler, I was an effective climber, I was an effective you know, bicyclist or whatever. I was effective, but um, the way I moved was quite uh, wooden soldierish. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I uh, this came to my attention actually when I, I I took some dance. So I took dance classes when I was in high school. I was more or less made to take them, but but I found them intriguing. Um, and then I started to kind of learn about this sort of movement, this fluidity of movement, this fluidity of movement. My movements were precise, but not fluid. Mm -hmm. So I had precision of movement as if every movement had been carefully calculated, which I guess in a way it had, but the fluidity of movement wasn't necessarily there. So I, uh, started really becoming more conscious of that as I, uh, as I, was drawn more into stage performance. I did vocal uh, ensembles. I'm a trained vocalist. Um, so I did a lot of uh, stage pieces. And then, then I did music theater pieces. Um, and I gained a huge awareness of stage presence and stage movement. And uh, I was also a pretty sporty kid. So, I mean, I had you know, something of a, of an athletic, uh, sense, but this really helped me to sort of clue into the quote unquote naturalness of movement. And I guess, and then as, as I've gone more and more into, uh, doing my workshops and training people to do workshops and public speaking and that sort of thing, I, I get feedback, uh, cause I've never seen myself. <laughs> I've never, you know, I've heard myself, uh, I guess. I, I don't necessarily sit and listen to myself that much, but I've never actually seen myself. I've never seen a picture. I've never seen a video. 
Um, I'm, I'm always shocked when my, you know, sister-in-law will say something like, oh, wow, you were really young in that video. Maybe it was something we shot 15 years ago. And I think in the back of my mind,